Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Hazreti Fakhri Alam Muhammad Mustafa Rasalavat. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. We're continuing with this uh, series of paradigms of leadership. The idea being to, first of all, interrogate the concept of leadership itself. Is this an Islamic concept? Are we supposed to seek it out or does it just descend upon us as an unwanted mantle from heaven, a, a responsibility uh, as well as a privilege? And we've seen the enormous range of human types, male and female, scholarly, non-scholarly, warrior, servitor of the poor, uh, mystic, philosopher that our civilization has produced. One of the vindications of the integrity and the power of the Mohammedan revelation is the extraordinary proliferation of civilizations and narratives which it has produced. Some of the moderns like to assume that Islam can be no more than a kind of dull legalism, a literal understanding of ancient canons of scripture. But what we've seen in this journey has been that, uh, in fact, Islam, the religion, produces Islam, the culture, and Islam, the culture, produces great civilizations. Civilizations far from perfect, no civilization ever is. But nonetheless, uh, it's important to remember this continuity and uh, philosophers such as Roger Scruton have pointed out that every culture historically is grounded in religion at some point and every civilization is grounded in a culture. And the challenge that we face in our modernity is of course with the absence of religion what kind of culture do we have other than the endless Pythonesque deconstructing of a culture that we used to have? What are we putting in the place of the old Abrahamic uh, religious assurances other than deconstruction and fanaticism for doctrines to do with the body. It's by no means clear that we still have a civilization as classically understood. One of the responsibilities of Muslims as they spread their wings in these lands of the West, where we are generally much freer to practice and to think and to understand and to resource our heritage than Muslims in the increasingly culturally locked down lands of the Muslim world, is to explore ways in which the current civilizational crisis of the Western world can be not exacerbated, as the anti-immigration pundits would have it, but rather healed by the presence of a community, a leaven in the dough, as it were, a catalytic uh, congregation, which still does have the capacity to root itself in religion, the basis of scrutinies of all culture and hence of all successful, sustainable civilizations. That is, it seems to me, uh, the calling of Muslims who live in the West, where the indigenous narrative has withered because the roots have died or been hacked away by generations of unthinking secularity, the idea being that religion far from offering us freedom from the self, actually offers us some kind of alienation and slavehood. Uh, And replacing that with a triumphant, virile Islamic narrative, which we may hope will be the healing for the current sickness of uh, Europe and America, now so salient and evident. So the civilizational principle is something that is axiomatic to Islam. 
and very often the best way of introducing Islam to those who know nothing of it or who know inaccurate things about it is not to hand them pamphlets, but rather to take them by the hand and to visit with them the great museums of the world. The British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, others just in London, Leighton House, other places offer extraordinary showcases of the uh, creative genius of the Islamic spirit. And because beauty is unarguable, things are beautiful and they affect the soul, Beauty has a capacity to enable us to transcend nafs and move towards ruh, even if we don't have a proper religious framework with which to articulate that. And as a result from that experience of beauty, we can move on, uh, since their defences are lowered to some extent, to explaining to them the civilizational, cultural and spiritual roots that made that beauty possible. And alhamdulillah, very often people do come to Islam through the path of understanding Islamic literatures and Islamic art. So if this is to be an important way forward, as we uh, proclaim our identity as healers in the West and as renewers of the civilizational principle rather than just uh, an ethnic problem, uh, we need to make sure that we are fully in touch with and proud of our own great civilizational heritage. The Holy Prophet planted a seed and the seed did not just produce one tree, although we consider the whole family of Islam is a tree, but perhaps a tree with so many different and diverse branches and fruits of different kinds. There has never been a spiritual principle in world history that has produced so much diversity and so much spiritual depth and richness. And we need to be aware of this because in the land of Dawah it is a very important and unarguable basis for the case that we need to make. So in the course of our visit to these various paradigms, we have seen that there are figures who are heroic, figures who are brilliant scholars, figures who create the ethico-legal basis for the brilliance of Islamic civilization and the sustainability of its social uh, vision, but also uh, individuals who allow, as it were, the spirit to be channeled through the creative aspects of the human mind and accumulative uh, wealth of uh, literary features in order to produce uh, the world's greatest ever literature. Uh, we've reflected on the fact that uh, the most popular poet now, even in Trump's America, is our very own Mullah Jalaluddin Rumi. That is an example of the power and the transformative reach of our literature. And evidently that is the place we need to start in order to bring our healing message, Rahmatun wa Shifa, to cultures that are now increasingly in pain because of the confiscation or the erasure of their own identities. So we need to be aware of the fecundity of the uh, seed that was planted uh, and to enjoy for ourselves the fruits that were given because there is so much beauty. <coughs> and we are the people who belong in those places. Western tourists wander around the Mezquita in Cordoba in amazement at its evident maturity and profundity and sheer beauty and the alchemical transformation which it brings to the hearts even of the most callow and absent-minded photographing tourist. But the Muslim, when he or she visits that space, in addition to that transformation, has also a sense of a pertinence of belonging. <coughs> So we enjoy this great privilege that we are heirs to this wonderful civilizational narrative. 
So the individual that I wish to uh, visit respectfully, whose hospitality we are seeking today, uh, is another of those extraordinary fruits and blossoms from the tree of our Mohammedan civilization, which grew particularly in Central Asia. We looked a few months ago at the figure of Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar, We've mentioned Maulana Rumi and many others, but we need to uh, consider that narrative because it seems to be that narrative of all of the narratives of Islam that has been able to put down roots amongst educated readers in the West. It is one thing to visit the Blue Mosque in Istanbul and to have a spiritual high for 10 minutes. That is easy, but to sit down with a divan of one of the great Persian poets requires a, a higher degree of cultural commitment and interest. <coughs> but these uh, writers are those who focus on principles that are eminently universal. If they didn't, if they were of no interest to our current day pains and concerns, the books would remain untranslated or gathering dust in the shelves of university libraries. But instead, they have, as it were, gone viral and become a major cultural meme in our otherwise very profane and divided and heartless civilization. It is uh, worth bearing in mind the fact that the seed that was planted by the Holy Prophet وسلم, was one which upheld diversity uh, insofar as the constituent cultures of the rainbow coalition of uh, Muslim civilizations that we see in the great ages of our faith, the triumphant times, not the defensive times, uh, was an incorporation of and a transformation of the various languages which constituted the Ummah. We've already had occasion to reflect on the paradox of the fact that the hand of Islam touches other languages and instead of seeing them wither away, they enter their golden age. This is the case certainly with the languages of the Turkic speaking area, which had very little literature before Islam appeared. It's certainly the case with the languages of uh, Sahelian Africa, Fulfulde, Hausa, Wolof, the dialects of the Tawariq, it's the case with Sawahili, which was more or less a language created by the Muslims. Certainly the case of the Malay Nusantara. Certainly the case with so many regions that instead of imposing a kind of imperial Arabness, Islam allows the particularities of the constituent sub-nations of the Ummah to floresce and to, in a strange sense, find their voice rather than lose it. And perhaps nowhere is that process of alchemical transformation more uh, palpably and undeniably miraculously evident than in the case of the, the Farsi language. Uh, and this is significant because the most substantial other ethnicity that early Islam encountered was not so much the Greek speakers of the Byzantine Empire, but was very much the peoples to the east when the capital of the um, despotic Persian Imperium, Ktesiphon al-Mada'in, was liberated and the armies of Omar ibn al-Khattab, Umar ibn Uthman, and later uh, moved into Iran, liberating the peasantry from the uh, uh, sterile grasp of the, uh, uh, of the aristocracy there. We find 
the presence of the Ajam, the non-Arab, represented and figured particularly as the Persian. And because the Holy Qur'an affirms that of Allah's signs is ikhtilafu al-sinatikum wa alwanikum, the difference of your tongues and colours, we find early Islam admirably able, certain Umayyad, Arab-centric chauvinisms apart, to incorporate and embrace and allow those people to uh, find an indigenous voice which they had failed to find before. The golden touch of Islam transformed them into gold. So we find uh, that our greatest literature is not the Arabic literature, but is probably the Persian literature. We have in Arabic so many great poems, but by and large, uh, they do not represent seeds that can be successfully sown in the, the lands of the West. Whereas the Persian poets, Hafez, Nizami, Attar, Sana'i, uh, particularly Rumi, uh, do seem to have very considerable traction. There are complex psychological reasons for this, which we don't really have the time or perhaps the capacity to, to penetrate. But uh, nonetheless, we notice that the non-Arabism, or even we could say the anti-Arabism of the, the, the prophetic moment, the appointment of Bilal, the presence of Salman al-Farisi, the presence of Sahib and Sinan, the Byzantine, amongst the first ranks of the Sahaba, the fact that the Holy Prophet والسلام, married Sayyidina Bilal to an aristocratic uh, Arab family that was famous for its pale skin, indicates that a new non-ethnocentric principle has been uh, launched upon the world. And the Persians respond to this very quickly and become the great embracers of and enriches intellectually of the Islamic tradition. It's an irony that the great early Arabic grammarians like Sibawe were actually of Persian origin. And we note that the Holy Prophet وسلم, in a hadith that's narrated by Imam Bazar and which Imam al-Haythami considers to be a sound hadith, said, If knowledge were as far away as the Pleiades, these distant seven sisters stars, people from Persia would attain to it. Not just a general sort of praise and respect for the Persian people in this sound hadith, but also uh, taken, at least by our Hanafi brothers, to be a specific foretelling of the appearance of Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, Norman bin Thabit, an, the eponymous founder of the largest of all of the uh, ethico-legal schools of classical Islamic civilization, a Persian, uh, not an Arab, even though this is an early period, and most of the Persians at this time are still not Muslim. So this, this embrace, despite the initial shock of the conquest and the overthrowing of the, 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 the Shah and his uh, aristocracy, uh, is one of the, the, the vindications of Islamic civilization and a proof of its universality. So uh, the figure that I want to talk about today is in a sense somebody who comes at the end of the most productive age of that extraordinary efflorescence of Persian literature, um, which begins with Rudaki, the first really Persian poet, uh, of any denomination, because poetry before the Islamic era was very mediocre and constrained largely either to Avestan hymn-making uh, or the discussion of certain Zoroastrian rituals, 
or uh, rather sterile proclamations of the glories of various ancient kings. But with the appearance of Islam, we find, as it were, the democratization of culture, uh, because the hierarchies of the Zoroastrian and Mazdean order were overthrown, and the democratization, of course, of all of the arts, because the great uh, art of uh, the ancients in Iran had been basically temples and mausoleums and various forms of glorifying the monarch. Whereas the appearance of the masjid, the mosque where everybody could equally enter and worship together, uh, was the place where the great creative architectural genius um, of the, the, the land was subsequently expressed. So uh, uh, a popularization, a democratization, and the indigenization of Islam in the language is a very important part of this. So there is Nizami, there is uh, Attar, there is Sana'i, uh, Rudaki, and the earlier poets, all of whom had a particular uh, perspective on the world and on the issues of the poets, and uh, who accumulated uh, a range of tropes and standard images. Uh, some of them, like the Leyla and Majnun image, borrowed from uh, Arabian sources. Others, such as the legend of Khosrow and Shirin, borrowed from pre-Islamic Iranian sources. But all of them brought together in a way that was incorporative uh, and cumulative, rather than competitive and displacing. Right at the end of that period, we find uh, Mullah Abdurrahman Jami, uh, who dies in uh, 1492. That's a very significant year, isn't it? Uh, the loss of Granada, far to the west, uh, the crossing of the Atlantic, the beginning of the ethnic cleansing of the Americas, the beginning of modernity in a certain way, is when the last of the great Golden Age Persian poets uh, breathes his last. Uh, and this is the, the individual that I wish to speak about today. And because there's not really much point talking about the life and times of a poet without really diving into his literary output, uh, we will be looking particularly towards the end at uh, one or two of his longer poems, just to, to breathe some of the, the fragrance of his verse, despite the inevitable impoverishments and displacements that occur when uh, a work is transposed and translated and moved into the aesthetic and uh, semantic uh, landscape of a very different uh, kind of uh, language and linguistic universe, but the transposition can work. And uh, we've already had occasion to reflect on the enormous transformative power of Islamic civilization on uh, Western culture. Uh, and very often, the usual Orientalist narrative is that, oh, the Muslims transmitted Greek philosophy and science to the West. Well, they did more than that because Avicenna did more than just copy things out, but massively uh, augmented uh, those arguments. And the same with Ibn Rushd's reception of Aristotle. They were not just porters and postmen, um, they were uh, inhabitants and enrichers of that tradition as well. But we tend to spend a little less time reflecting on more subtle and spiritual upliftments that came to the West and have been significant in constitution, constituting its historical civilizational norms. There are the, the three waves of love, perhaps one way in which these more subtle aesthetic spiritual uh, transformations have made their way from the world of Islam to the Western world. Uh, the first being the transformation of the kind of love poetry 
which we saw when we were dealing with uh, uh, Sayyida Sukaina bint al-Hussein, one of our earlier lecturers, and we noticed how early Islam represented this extraordinary efflorescence of uh, love poetry, uh, and how William Chittick and others see Islam as quintessentially the religion of love, uh, and how that, through the uh, troubadours and the traditions of courtly love, uh, came from Muslim Spain and Provence into Europe and triggered the idea of the romantic as part of the, uh, the, the, the legendary uh, imaginary of, of, of Western Europe. And then the second wave of love comes about uh, when the, uh, the from the time of the Renaissance onwards, when uh, Sufi texts and Persian texts in particular are rendered into European languages. And Europeans start to appreciate the possibility of a form of religion that is not about flagellant monks and a denial of the world, but an embracing of the world and a kind of sacramental love, uh, so that celibacy and the renunciation of the world is not the only path to God, but there is a way of reaching God by going through the world rather than around it. And the third wave, which is still incipient, which represents uh, the extraordinary meme of the poetry, particularly of Maulana Rumi, in the Western world, uh, and the refreshing of a tired and materialistic civilization with the Nasa'im al-Mahabba, with the fresh winds of love. But it's the second wave that is uh, represented by Mullah Abdurrahman Jami, some of whose poems have gone into European languages, although they operate, it's fair to say, in a minor key when compared to the extraordinary uh, palpitations that uh, the soul of Rumi has brought to the Western heart. So, uh, Mullana Abdurrahman uh, Jami, uh, known in the Muslim poetic world as Khatam al-Shu'ara, the seal of the poets, um, a term which means not just kind of the best, the one who is summative, who brings everything together and does it in a way that is more masterful than his predecessors, but also a somewhat wistful acknowledgement of the fact that uh, only seven or eight years after his death, everything is going to change in his Persian world. Uh, and you have the, the, the Safavid revolution from 1502 onwards, Shah Ismail Safavi with his very strange incarnationist uh, sense of Shiism and the steady liquidation of the Sunni uh, consensus and balance in the traditional Iranian world. Uh, granted that Mullah Jami spends most of his uh, creative life in, uh, in Herat, which is nowadays in Afghanistan, and continues to have a very large Sunni population some way from the Safavid capital, which is far to the west in, in Tabriz. But still, it is interesting to reflect on the fact that uh, this extraordinary silsila or chain of brilliant Persian poets, once the country falls into the grip of the Safavids, seems to kind of come quite precipitately to an end. Um, a number of explanations have been offered of this and uh, offered, and, and we might want to speculate, but that's a little bit outside our purview today. So let's acquaint ourselves, first of all, with the events of his, of his uh, life. Um, Jami is, as we said, fairly late in this cycle. It's 400, 400 years after Rudaki begins the tradition of Persian sacred poetry. <coughs> And he is in the time of the Mongols, the Timurids in particular. 
not the terrifying mass-murdering Mongols of Genghis Khan and Timur and so forth, but the Mongols who to some extent have had their wildness tamed by the spirit of Islam when, when Sufis such as Saif ad-Din Yahya Kharzi converted them to Islam. One of the great transformations in, in the history of the religion and indeed of, of world history. One with enormous ramifications for the history of, of Russia, for the history of um, Europe, for everybody's history really. Russian history begins with the 1320, the Battle of Kulikovo, which is when the Mongol Muslims of the Golden Horde are defeated and Russia really begins. So <coughs> Jami is coming towards uh, the end of this period and is born, as you might guess from his name, in a place called Jam, which is a small town in Khorasan. There's two big areas that are kind of close to each other which are enormously productive, perhaps more productive culturally and in a scholarly way than anywhere else in the Islamic world uh, for centuries. <coughs> there is Khorasan, which is roughly that area, you know, a few hundred miles either side of the place where the, the, the border between uh, the old Soviet Central Asia, Tajikistan, meets with Afghanistan and Iran. The place where those borders meet, that's Khorasan. Further to the north, beyond the uh, Sirdaria River, you have Transoxiana, Mawara and Nahar, which is a very different kind of area with Samarkand and Bukhara and Shash and those places kind of fading out to the far north where you've just got the steppe and then Siberia and that's, as it were, the end of uh, civilization. Nobody would wish to travel beyond that. So Mullah Jami is a Khorasani. Uh, sometimes you find him called Dashti because his father was from a place uh, somewhat further to the west called Dasht, but usually Mullah Abdurrahman Jami uh, is how we know him, and indeed he does give us a, a poem. Um, quite often we get biographical snippets in his enormous, gigantic, oceanic, um, uh, poetic output. So he says, Mawlidim jam varashhai ghalamam, jur'ai jam shaykh al-islami ast, la jarama dar jaridai ash'ar, bidu ma'na takhallusi jami ast. I was born in jam, and the drops that fall from my pen are gulpings from the chalice of Sheikh al-Islam. What he means here is that in the place called Jami is actually named after uh, somebody called Sheikh Ahmed Inamiqi Jami, who was buried in the town of Jam about two centuries earlier. Um, Jean de Pille, he was called the, the Raging Elephant. That was the name of this, this saint because of his his strength, and he's left one or two works of poetry, but his tomb was there. And uh, it seems that uh, Mullah Jami had a particular attraction, attraction to the, uh, the, the fragrance that the Sheikh had left. Certainly, in the register of poetry, my pen name is Jami, with both meanings. In other words, well, it's kind of three meanings, really, because Jam is the place where he's from, so he's Jami. But also there's Sheikh al-Islam Jam, who's, who's located there, so he has that attachment. But also Jam in the Persian language means like a chalice, a grail, a cup from which you drink the wine of love. And so that's a, the kind of play on words that, that he would like. Uh, yep, so uh, he is from this town. We know a lot about his life, partly because he does talk about himself and partly because his disciple Abdul Ghafur Lari and others 
um, write about him quite extensively. He's very much at the centre of the literary uh, milieu in his world, and um, his, his biography is pretty well known compared to some of the other paradigms of leadership that we have investigated. Um, uh, and towards the end of his life, he writes in poetry, of course, his autobiography, uh, Sprinklings of the Mind, um, where he talks about his family. And it's an interesting feature of him, and perhaps an indication of his Sufi nature, that uh, even though he quite often participates in social gatherings where people are endlessly reciting lists of their ancestors and their family trees, particularly their Ahl al-Bayt, he doesn't really do that. But he does say in this poem that his ancestor was a Persian man called Hormuz, who in the time of Omar, ben, uh, Omar ibn al-Khattab, so this is really early, converts to Islam in Mesopotamia, in Iraq. So he must have been one of the very first Persians to convert to Islam. And this Hormuz had a son called Tawus. And his son Tawus has two sons, Thabit and Abdullah. Thabit is important because he becomes the father of Abu Hanifa. Abdullah becomes important because he's the grandfather of Muhammad al-Shaybani, who is Abu Hanifa's leading pupil. So there's this strongly fiqh-based uh, orientation. And again, it's a reminder of how important these Persian converts, these Mawali, were in the formulation of early Islam. So a descendant of Muhammad al-Shaybani settles in Khorasan, uh, um, and Jami's father was a certain Nizam al-Din, who is the local judge, the Qadi, of this place, Jam. His father has an influence on him. He's brought up with fiqh and with tafsir and with uh, literature in a Persian-speaking environment. But the big influence on him, at least according to all the biographers, is that at the age of five, he meets uh, the great Khawaja Muhammad Parsa, who we met in the context of the life of Ubaidullah Ahrar. Uh, he dies in 1420, and he, he's going through the town of Jama on his way to Hajj. Not only was the Hajj in those days a place where people talked and shared poetry and shared ideas, which it isn't now. You just go to Starbucks, do your tawaf and go back home again. That's the Hajj nowadays. But back then, Mecca was a city of many madrasas, points of view, and the Haram was full of scholars with their own circle. And it was a possibility for somebody from what's now Afghanistan to meet somebody from Cordoba, the only chance they had. And this is one reason uh, for the... <coughs> The, the, the remarkable unity of traditional Islam. There was no pope to hold things together, but there was the Hajj, where people would actually meet and exchange ideas and find out who's writing what. In the days before uh, the internet, this was uh, enormously important in securing the coherence of the civilization, despite its colossal geographic extent. So Khawaja Muhammad Parsa, uh, of the Naqshbandi family, a great wali, loved universally. All the people in the town come up to greet him and seek his blessings as he's passing through on the Hajj. Jami's father, Sayyid Nizamad, Sheikh Nizamuddin, puts him on his shoulder, as fathers do, uh, and uh, Parsa offers him two things. He offers him a sweet, he's a child, he's five, but also a glance, lahza, just a look. And this lahza, this look of the saint, like the prophetic glance, has the capacity to make a fundamental alchemical change in the heart of the person who is blessed 
by it. And this begins what really is his lifelong journey, which is very emphatically within the Naqshbandiya. He's not one of those Tariqa people who have different affiliations. He's Naqshbandi through and through. He's one of the great writers, maybe the greatest poet of the Naqshbandiya, this great Central Asian Bukharan tradition. So at the age of about 13, his family upsticks and leave Jam and go to Herat, which is slightly to the east. It's now in, in Afghanistan, of course. Um, maybe because he was obviously very promising and they wanted to improve the boy's education. Uh, and he joins the Nizamiya College in Herat. And then another madrasa called Madrasa Dilkash. He's always looking for the best teachers because he's so quick already. Um, <coughs> studies with somebody called uh, Mullah Junaid Usuli and has a very strong Arabic focus. Uh, it's important to remember that even though he's one of the great Persian poets, he also really knows his Arabic. And when he bursts into Arabic, sometimes in his divans, it's really good Arabic. And indeed, he writes a book on Arabic grammar, as, as we'll see. Um, he is taught Kalam by one of the disciples of Imam Ataftazani, one of the great Kalam authors of the age. And later on, this is going to bear fruit, uh, and we'll have reason to discuss Jami's complicated and complex relationship to Kalam. This is always one of the creative tensions in Islamic civilization, the way of the heart and the way of the mind. The way of the heart is very much the Naqshbandi thing. Naqshband means carving on the heart. That's where religion reposes, experience, dhawq. But the mind also, uh, has the right to understand, and it is in the mind and in the realm of logic that one can refute error. Both of these things have to be uh, represented in the civilization. But generally, certainly from his earliest days, from the time of his meeting with the gaze of Khaja Muhammad Parasa Mullah Jami, is on the, the heart side of things. Um, but he also studies fiqh and he studies tafsir, and he studies hadith very thoroughly, as you'd expect, and he's really kind of one of those geniuses of our civilization. So we're told that he'd do his homework, some things are timeless, just by asking one of the boys he was walking to school with to show him the book that they were studying. And as they walked along, he'd just look at what the book was, and when he got to the class, he would be the one who'd dominate the complete, the, completely the discussion in the madrasa because he just saw the, the purpose of the discussion, not just what is the information conveyed by the book, but what is the reason for this, this discussion. So he studies even some things that we'd call secular studies. Um, there's somebody in Herat, in the region at the time, called Qadi Zadeh, uh, Rumi, who comes from the Ottoman court. And there's a very strong connection, as you can understand, the Naqshbandi connection, the... Uh, Khorasan is really the spiritual homeland of the Ottomans, just the Turks have come to Europe from Central Asia, so also the Naqshbandi sheikhs, and of course Mullah Rumi goes from Balkh and settles in, in Konya. Um, the Ottoman axis, the Ottoman pedigree is to the east rather than to the Arab lands in the south. So Qadi Zadeh is this great astronomer of the age, and is associated with uh, somebody called Ulugh Beg later on, who's the governor of Samarkand. And to this day, if you go to Samarkand, and I've seen it, one of the tourist sites there is the observatory of Ulughbeg. Um, and Ulughbeg himself, despite being a prince, actually was kind of preoccupied with astronomy and made some very significant uh, contributions to um, uh, the Zij, the Almanac, and the Celestial 
tables. Um, so he goes to Samarkand, uh, which is the capital of the Timurid Empire, one of the few towns that the Mongols had not completely flattened. Um, and uh, associates with, with Ulugh-Beg. Um, well, Qadizad is looking after this observatory and there's various debates and Mullah Jami is already clearly the great scholar of, of the time. Then after about 15 years, he goes back to Herat. Okay, he's in his 20s now. Why does he go back? Ah, well, <laughs> it seems that there was some kind of unfortunate love story at work here, that he was in love with some unnamed person in the city of Samarkand, uh, inappropriately, and had three dreams of his sheikh, Sa'aduddin Kashgari, who's one of the great early um, Naqshbandi saints, who is his murshid at the time, um, who tells him, never mind these dispensable companions, travel to the one, the true God, who is the only indispensable companion. And this becomes a kind of repentance, a sort of Ghazalian moment, where he becomes not just a kind of formalist religious athlete, but somebody who is seeking God. Uh, this is through the dream of Kashkari. So he goes to Herat, back to Herat, and associates himself with, with the line of the Khwajagan, which is the great Naqshbandi golden chain of teachers. Um, Kashkari is in the line of Maulana um, Ala Adin Attar, who was a disciple of Baha Adin Naqshband himself. So Herat is really one of the capitals of, of the Naqshbandi movement. And the Naqshbandis become, partly because of the portability of the tariqa, which doesn't have too many complex rituals or structures um, to go with it, but partly also because Central Asia is the centre of the world until Columbus. So they're able to become a very important presence in China, the main tariqa in China, an important presence in India, everywhere. This is kind of the, the heart of the Muslim world is is Khorasan and Mawara and Nahar at the time. So he's now involving himself more seriously um, with these individuals. And uh, Kashgari's teacher, Mullah Khamush, seems to have influenced some of his rather eccentric styles. And one of the enlivening things that Sufism does for the Ummah is to produce people who are Sharia compliant but somewhat strange or unexpected. Uh, so Kashari, whose job it was to give a talk before and after each one of the five daily prayers in the main mosque of Herat, <coughs> would sometimes during his talk fall silent and it was look as if he'd fallen asleep, but he hadn't. It was in a state of ghalaba, he was overcome by his awareness of the, the divine power and khawf and rajat. Um, so he, that's why he's called khamush. Khamush means silent. Khamush bashtu azrenjagoft. So Kashkari is Jami's sheikh, but really quite unlike him. Uh, and it's Kashkari who really puts him through the necessary ordeals that are required if people are to transcend mere youthful exuberance and ego. So there are periods of silence, periods of fasting, periods of austerity, periods of retreat, khalwa. Uh, and as he goes through this process, uh, in a fairly characteristic Naqshbandi Central Asian way, 
he says, Kalam and logic are all very well, but they're not really a decisive path to God. The decisive path to God is for your heart to be open to the divine nearness. And a lot of the ulama in Herat are not really happy hearing their prize, discipline, kalam, kind of not abolished but downgraded by Mullah Jami. Uh, and he gets unpopular in a certain sense. Four, four years later, uh, Kashgari dies, He's buried in Herat, and 30 years later or something, that's where Mullah Jami is going to be buried as well. So he's his great, great teacher. And later on, Mullah Jami goes on to marry Kashgari's granddaughter. It's quite common in the Tariqa world for uh, the daughter or the granddaughter to marry somebody who is then regarded as being the, the one who carries the torch for the Tariqa. And she becomes his only wife. Uh, we know that he has four children, three of whom die pretty young. And some of his most heartfelt poetry, actually, some of the elegiac masterpieces of the Persian language are laments that he produces, ratat, um, for um, the death of his, his babies. Um, one of them, Safiya Din, who died after only a few days, I think, produced a uh, elegy, which is really one of the masterpieces of Persian poetry, still a tearjerker to this day. The only one of his uh, boys who survives is Tia Adin. Um, who goes on to become pretty close to him, and for whom he uh, wrote at least one book, Al-Fawaid Al-Diyaiyah, the Diyai Benefits, which is a commentary on uh, Ibn al-Hajib's great Arabic grammar work. So thanks, Dad, for this big grammar book. That's what he does for his son. He's making sure that he gets a proper education. Also present in this Naqshbandi world um, is uh, Khwaja Ubaidullah Ahrar, whom we've already met, who is in Samarkand. Um, Khwaja Ahrar had had the famous dream when he was a child of the Holy Prophet who asked him to carry him. Ahrar would carry the Holy Prophet up a mountain and was told at the end of this that you will be strong. And Ahrar is one of the Naqshbandis who really uphold the traditional Naqshbandi attitude to the state. Remember, they're in this world of the Mongols, maybe superficially Islamized, maybe very brutal. Always when the Sultan dies, there's a catastrophic civil war between the sons who are all trying to kill each other. They're pretty rough. Uh, and the Naqshbandi tradition is always, you engage with politics in order to counsel the king to support the destitute and the poor, and that should be an important feature of every Naqshbandi khutbah. So Ahrar becomes a friend of Jami, visits his home. Jami is living outside the city of Herat in a kind of distant uh, rural suburb, Khayabani John. Uh, and there's no pu disciple-pupil relationship here, instead it's Irshad ve Istirshad. They are guiding each other and seeking guidance from each other. It's a particular kind of spiritual fellowship where the conversation is all about deen, where they're just learning what they don't have from the other person. <coughs> but they also discuss worldly things. The Naqshbandis also have a famous interest in irrigation. So they discuss ways of improving the irrigation system of the Herat area. This is Central Asia. Okay, so snow in the winter, complete parched, uh, rainless summers. Irrigation is really important because summer is when the crops grow and are harvested. So to this day, 
the people of the Herat region and other parts of Afghanistan, Persian speakers, still make reference to Mullah Jami's book on irrigation technique because it's so effective and so based on his understanding of what was, what was appropriate in that area. And there's canals and irrigation systems dug in the region of Mazar Sharif, Herat, Balkh, which are from that, that, that Naqshbandi uh, concern to make the desert bloom. Um, he is writing uh, poetry which is a mixture of Naqshbandi austere counsels and the effusive love-based tradition um, that is now time-honoured in the Farsi literary tradition. So one of the first that he writes is Tuhfet al-Ahrar, Tuhfet Ahrar, a gift to Mullah Ubaidullah Ahrar, which is a Masnavi, uh, which is a, essentially a spiritual, an extended spiritual epic. So he's associating with these people. Um, he's also very close to somebody who leaves an even bigger impact on the literature, which is um, Ali Shir Nevai. So think about the map of the region. This is kind of the interface between different cultural zones. China is not so far away. To the south, there's India and there's the Persian-speaking world. Over the river, there is basically a Turkic-speaking world. There's places that are now Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and, and, and so forth, Kyrgyzia. The Turks are a major factor in the political life of the Ummah because the uh, Mongol elites are now speaking this language, Chagatai Turkish. Uh, and Ali Shir Nevai is, of the citizens of Herat, from the literary elite, the one who is really trying to make Turkish into a literary language for the first time. So we've already mentioned how Islam transforms and uplifts and enriches languages. Nava'i is one of the great figures in this process that enables these traditions of Islamic ghazal writings, the masnavi, the, the meters, the arul, the rhyming system of classical Islamic verse, to find a home in the Turkic language. They call it Turki. It's quite different to modern Turkish and different also to Ottoman Turkish. So he's a Chagatai poet, but a very major one. Uh, and they're very close. So Nava'i writes a kind of biography of, of, of Jami, Khamsat al-Mutahayyirin. They're so sort of immersed in poetry that it's as easy for them to write poetry as it is to write prose. It doesn't really require any additional effort. Uh, Nava'i also adds to the cultural synthesis and richness of the city of Herat, the so-called Timurid Renaissance that is happening by writing a very unusual book called Muhakamat al-Lughatayn, Arbitration Between the Two Languages. There's a discussion in which is better, Turkish or Persian? Those are the two big languages of the region. And he gives some very complex and interesting discussions. Uh, but of course, as you can imagine, he says actually the Turkish language is a bit better than the Farsi language. And they come out at the top in this sort of wrestling match between the two great linguistic traditions. So in this book, Khamsat al-Mutahayyirin, the Khamsa, the fivefold versification of the bewildered, how you translate it, he explains how he made friends with Jami. It seems they both used to go to a, a famous bookshop, a good bookshop in Herat. Uh, and in those days, bookshops were not just places where there's some girl at the cash register and you've looked the thing up on Amazon beforehand, it's very kind of supermarket-like. Bookshop was a major cultural center. So uh, 
Mullah Jami had visited the bookshop and the owner had said, you know, I've got something really amazing in this beautiful copy of the Munajat of Khawaja. Abdullah Ansari, Abdullah Ansari, centuries earlier, had been the great Sufi writer and poet uh, in Persian, some in Arabic as well, of the city of Herat. His Sadmaidan is wonderful. And this is the Munajat, Intimate Conversations. There's a translation in English. It's his Munajat, it's his Conversations with God. Jami is amazed and makes the bookseller very impatient because he reads the whole book in the shop and then he goes off in a spiritual state. <laughs> a few days later, along comes Ali Shir Nevai and the bookseller said, I didn't sell it to that other guy, maybe I can do a deal here. Ali Shir Nevai looks at the book and does exactly the same thing. Reads it page by page and then goes off in a state. And so the bookseller said, well, this other guy did it. And that's how the two... Uh, come together, and this friendship is really very important. They're best friends um, on both sides and uh, trigger each other's poetic um, compositions in very major ways. So uh, because of their conversations, a number of Jami's great works, including, interestingly, his Shawahid and Nubuwa, Proofs of Prophecy, which is all about the Holy Prophet وسلم, who he was, who his lineage was, why he had to come, what are the proofs that he was an authentic prophet. Um, one of the great works in Islamic literature on that subject is actually triggered by his friendship with Nava'i and some of the discussions that they'd had on the, on the subject. And also, probably even more influentially, one of Jami's three or four most widely read books today, Nafahat al-Uns, The Exhalations of Intimacy which is a kind of encyclopedia of Muslim saints. Based on the Tabaqat al-Sufiyya of uh, Abdurrahman Sulami, an Arabic work from centuries earlier, but with a lot of additional information and very systematically organized. And this becomes uh, one of the great sources of information that we have. And he includes also, which is a bit unconventional, uh, people who are still alive um, while the book was being composed. And it's, the most useful information, source of information we have for the history of the early Naqshbandiya. His disciple, Abdul Ghafur al-Lari, after Jami dies, adds one further chapter, which is, of course, the life of Mullah Jami, which is one of our big sources of information, showing him very much in his kind of holy dimension as the perfect Naqshi sage. Uh, after Jami dies, also, uh, Ali Shir Nevai, gesture of respect perhaps to his dead friend, translates it into his language, Chagatai Turkish, and this is Nasa'imul uh, Mawadda, the breezes of love. And then it goes into the hands of somebody called Lami'i Celebi into Ottoman Turkish, and it becomes one of the, the classics in the Ottoman Empire uh, for uh, spiritual seekers. Um, and this seems to be one of the aspects of their friendship. Jami, for instance, once wrote a versified <coughs> commentary on 40 famous hadith, chill hadith, shows it to his friend Nava'i on one of his visits. Nava'i really likes it and translates it, also in verse, into Turkish. Now, one of the interesting signs of the universality of Islam is that even though the original meters, the orul, the qafiya, of ancient Arabic, which is pre-Islamic, it's the odes of the Jahili poets, Imra al-Qais and so forth, which are important to Islamic civilization, but, but broadened, particularly in Muslim Spain, is that 
it really does presuppose the long and the short vowels of the Arabic language. But then it becomes the basis for Persian poetry. And as we know, Persian poetry is this literary miracle and very natural and flowing Persian it is too. And Turkish, which is even more different with eight vowels minimum and all kinds of other things that it that has to do in the positioning of the verb also, uh, turns into a great uh, vehicle for the, the Turkish heritage. But translating Farsi verse into good Turkish verse is not, not a straightforward thing because the syntax is completely different. Um, uh, the place of the verb, for instance, the word order, um, case endings, it's different. So the, this seems to be a kind of idyllic friendship. Jami is receiving quite a lot of cash at the time because people love his poetry and they make benefactions to him. He's living in this suburb. He has people like Nava'i coming to visit him, Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahra, the kind of religious elite, the great scholars are meeting in his house. But it's, it's still the Timurid Empire. These are the descendants of Genghis Khan. These are boys who are brought up to the arts of war. These are polo-playing samurai warrior types without much mercy. Um, there is the Timurid fratricidal tradition, which to traditional Muslims seemed outrageous. Whenever the Sultan dies, the sons all try and kill each other, which becomes a problem later on in the Ottoman Empire as well and has various not very satisfactory ways of resolving it. Um, but in the year 1470, somebody called Hussein Baikara takes over as ruler of, of the region. And he becomes another person who is in this literary circle. Hussein Baikara, and there's great buildings which he created in Central Asia, which are still there, um, is not really particularly into religion so much, uh, but he does love poetry just as Ulugh Beg was preoccupied with astronomical tables, Baikara's thing is poetry and getting poets around him. And Jami's purpose always is the Naqshbandi thing that you don't flee from the rulers so much as try and get into their affections and wherever you can provide some kind of advice so that they will mend their ways. So there are very tactful poems attributed to Mullah Jami about how sultans really shouldn't drink that sort of thing. So this is, what something, this is something that Jami says. Closeness to kings, as is well known to the intelligent and enlightened, is the best means to attaining goals of dunya and deen for the perfection of inner and outer happiness. It makes possible help for the unfortunate and eases intercession on behalf of the wretched. The rulers know that the prayers of the saints are important and know that the love of the saints is important to the masses. And therefore, when the saint comes to the ruler and says, you should let that person out of prison, or you shouldn't have punished him for giving that khutbah, or you should do something about those starving people at the city gate, the ruler is likely to take that seriously and will clap his hand and a bag of gold will be directed to those ends. And this is historically one of the important aspects of the Naqshbandiya. And also the Zainiya, which is a tariqah that was also active in Herat at the time, of Zainuddin Khafi, who was active at the time. So uh, important to recognize this in terms of the paradigm of leadership idea, um, that there can be a justification for sitting around with the Sultan if by being his boon companion you can then put in a good word for the needy. So here, for instance, um, 
Jami writes this letter about kind of street gangs. If it be appropriate, convey the following to His Majesty, the generous and just, Mufsili Adil, that perchance he may give some thought to the state of the Muslims. A gang of ruffians and reprobates recruited from foot soldiers, farriers and so forth, have gained complete control of the city and much blood has been shed without anyone calling them to account. Last night, a group of them entered a mazar where the poor reside and inflicted multiple sword blows on one of them so that he is now on his deathbed. It's true that a message has gone out that merchants are not to be harassed and some of them have begun to trickle back into the city uh, and so on. No limits are observed. Great sums are extorted on the slightest pretext. From all this, nothing but ill repute will accrue to those in attendance on His Majesty. May Allah prolong his justice and beneficence. In short, nobody gives any thought to the state of the Muslims. Everyone is after his own gain. So that's one of Jami's letters. And this, incidentally, is in the best book that we have on Mullah Jami, which is by Hamid Algar. Jami, Makers of Islamic Civilization, uh, which I can strongly recommend. So that's an example of what these sheikhs saw as being the point of hanging out and swapping verses with these sultans, that once you become their close friends, you can then actually do something for the uh, state of the city. Um, so, but at the same time, while he's hanging out with the sultan, he is not really doing much teaching and is not really a kind of sheikh in the traditional understanding of a sheikh with lots of disciples around him. In fact, his own temperament is very much to prefer solitude. And even if he's with the crowd, it's the Naqshbandi asl principle of khalwat dar anjuman, solitude in the crowd. So uh, here's another poem in Algar's uh, really useful book. It's not academic at all, it's quite accessible. So this is um, from his Masnavi Silsilata Dahab. Make of your home a place of seclusion, sit facing the wall of retreat. Bind your heart solely to God, sever your mind from all thought of men. Stand vigilantly at the gate of your heart, let none of your breaths be taken in vain. If to ward off temptation by the evil inclined self, Nafsi Ammara, companion be needed, take choice books as your intimate friend, for they are the best of companions in this age. Lay hold of a Qur'an, well copied and clear, accurate in all ways, like the mind of the wise. Study the authentic hadith of the Prophet, those that derive from his exalted conduct and character. Acquire copies of Bukhari and Muslim, free of all defect and error. Read too the well-known commentaries on the Qur'an, those far removed from distortion and innovation. Then also text on the principles and ordinances of the Sharia, whatever be worthy and most suitable. And on the arts of language, on grammar and syntax, the finest that has ever been written. Read too the treatises of the people of unveiling and witnessing, the dicta of those who have tasted the reality of being, Ahli Zawq Wujud. Whatever appeals to reason and understanding discloses itself to the intelligent mind. And from the diwans of eloquent poets, the speech of the masters of verse, whatever expands your straightened breast, whether it be qasidas, masnavis or ghazals, 
Once you have gathered all these requisites, then avert your heart from all commerce with men. So that's a good indication of how he saw himself, somebody whose friends were largely books, but going out into the world um, in order to benefit the world. Very Naqshbandi. So he has a, a book, Sarrashti Tariqi Khajagan. It's quite short, um, which means Essence of the Path of the Khajagan, which focuses on the principle of Davami Khuzur Ma'al Haq, constant presence with the Absolute, with the true God. That the basis of the spiritual practice is this muraqaba, this awareness of Allah's constant presence. And this is the path which leads on not just to an awareness, but to a witnessing, mushahada. And the book explains that we achieve this through three techniques. Firstly, a dhikr that is silent. One of the advantages of the usual Naqshbandi practice of silent dhikr is that nobody notices. So silent that people can't even see your finger moving or anything. You're just kind of sitting around and daydreaming, but you're in a state of dhikr. Secondly, tawajjuh which means an orientation towards the heart. Be constantly aware in the totality of your physical, spiritual being of the centrality of the heart and make sure that the heart is alert and the centre of things. Number three, rabita, Constant attachment to the spiritual guide. Again, that's a very Naqshbandi idea, which is that one is constantly thinking of one's teaching teacher, perhaps in communication with one's teacher in ways that might bewilder us through dreams and so forth perhaps even a sense of a constant attachment to the teacher after the teacher has gone through the curtain of death and is in the world of the Barosach and it gets into very mysterious and enigmatic conditions here. But that's very important for the Naqshbandis, that the, the spiritual guide should be in one's company. So that's his Sarrashte. But he also writes a book, short book, called Sukhanani Khaja Parsa, which is basically an anthology of words of Muhammad Parsa, who, as we remember, is the one who inspired Mullah Jami when he was only five years old. Um, principles enunciated in this book, his spiritual advice, what is to be the style of the man of God? Uh, very important is concern for the poor. Remember Bahá'u'lláh Naqshban's initiation, his service to the poor. It can be quite intense sometimes. Number two, counselling the rulers. Don't just let them get away with it, but speak out. Another interesting feature of his spirituality is a kind of lack of interest in karamat, miraculous deeds performed at the hands of the saints. He says that the best one is this jadhba, this sudden sense of attraction to the presence of God that you experience in moments of holiness and dhikr. In this book, Sukhanan, but also elsewhere, he indicates that Despite the preference for silent dhikr, one should not be with some of the strict Naqshbandis who say that's the only form of dhikr, but there can also be a vocal dhikr, <coughs> which can affect what he calls the quwa mutakhayyila, which is the imagination within us, that there is a certain spiritual benefit that comes about when we are actually resonating with the word of God rather than it just operating within. And he is known sometimes to have gone to gatherings of sama', which is classical Sufi circle where people are singing and there's inshad or recitation. Sometimes he would go to those, those gatherings. Now we mentioned that even though he's clearly in the, the line of the, the Naqshbandis, he isn't really considered to be a teaching sheikh. 
He's with his books, he's with his poems, he's with his friends, but it's not with the usual sort of crowd of young, adoring disciples. Um, Ahrar heard this, and this is unusual for an Akshbandi Sheikh, just not, not to accept disciples. So Ahrar famously comes up with the words of Abdul Khaliq Devani, who's one of the great early uh, uh, figures in the line of the Naqshbandiya and the town of Ghujdavan in Uzbekistan is still built around his mazar, which is an amazingly beautiful place. Abdul Khaliq Ghujdavani. Dari Sheikhi Rabeband, Dari Yari Begushai, Dari Khalvet Rabeband, Dari Sohbet Ragushai. Close the door of Sheikhhood, open the door of friendship. Close the door of Khalvet, retreat, open the door of Sohbet, companionship. That's a particular style. So it doesn't really have spiritual descendants in the usual sense of a silsila, although occasionally in the sources we find references to a tariqi jamiya, a tariqa that comes from Mullah Jami, but it's a very faint thing. Um, present particularly, it seems, in Mecca and Medina, in the Hijaz, in the Ottoman period. And indeed, he goes to the Hijaz in the year 1472. He does his Hajj, and as was common then, he visits many cities to benefit from the mazars, to benefit from the madrasas, to meet the leading scholars and judges of those cities. And he does write a book at the end of it, Risale Manasiki Hajj, a book on the rituals of the Hajj, which is basically kind of fiqh guide to how to perform your Hajj correctly. On his way, various things happen. Uh, and in Baghdad, which was, even though the Mongols in the 13th century had flattened it, was growing again, uh, and was, <coughs> as it always has been in its history, a meeting point and a flashpoint of different denominations and sects. So uh, he goes to Karbala in the Sunni tradition, and one of his great poems is a great ode uh, to Imam Hussein, which is popular among Sunnis and Shia to this day. It's a very heartfelt and beautiful thing. But in Baghdad, he gets involved in sectarian polemic, and we need to uh, recall the role of the Naqshbandis in particular. The Naqshbandis, their line is from Abu Bakr, unlike the other tariqas who are generally from Imam Ali. And this uh, Abu Bakr affiliation makes some of the Naqshbandis kind of really critical of the Shia. And this, in places which are denominationally mixed, can be playing with fire. So one of his works, which is the first in the seven great poems which make up his Haft Aurang, the seven thrones, which we'll talk about, Silsilaya Dahab, the golden chain. Sounds very Naqshbandi. Um, he, in this Silsila, he praises at least the first eight Imams of the, the Shia. And interestingly, he presents this as a kind of secondary Naqshbandi lineage. The main Naqshbandi lineage is from Abu Bakr Siddiq, down to Naqshband. But there's another secondary lineage, you say, for the Naqshbandiya, which is indeed from Imam Ali, Imam al Hassan, Imam al Hussein, Imam Ali bin Zain al Abidin, and so forth. Uh, and that's the point of this not quite conciliatory but inclusive understanding of Sunnism. Now, uh, a couple of Shi'i scholars from Baghdad 
uh, start to raise questions about this because he uses the word Rawafaz. Despite his love for the Ahl al-Bayt, he's saying that there are these Rawafid, people who don't return the compliment uh, and aren't able to include the first Khulafa, and these are the refusers, the Rawafid. And this is exactly the playing with fire thing that people are nervous about. So these Shi'i scholars go grumbling to the Sunni governor of the town, saying he's calling us kafir. And this is obviously something that has to be resolved. So the Hanafi chief justice and the Shafi'i chief justice get together with Mullah Jami and the accusers in a madrasa. A kind of, not tribunal, but inquiry. And it's important, so even though people can't get into this madrasa, everybody's climbing on the walls and looking down to see, well, who's right? This becomes simplistically a kind of Sunni Shi'i thing. And then they produce a copy of the Sidsilay Dhahab and they read it, and it's love for the Ahl al-Bayt. And it becomes clear that the accusers have been reading it in the wrong order and have misrepresented it. So uh, Mullah Jami is acquitted. <laughs> now Jami is so full of love for the Ahl al-Bayt and Imam Hussein that he says in Herat, I thought I was afraid people would accuse me of being a Shi'i. But I never thought that in Baghdad the Shia would attack me. Um, and this goes on because the Shia are present also in Central Asia. This is the eve of the Safavid revolution, remember. And a certain Abu Hassan Karbalai goes to the governor of Herat, asking Sultan Baikara, saying, We all love the Ahlul Bayt. Let's have the names of the 12 Imams read out in every khutbah. Ahlul Bayt. Let's do this. Um, so Baiqara asked Mullah Jami, what should we do about this? This is sensitive. And he says, we already do this because the Khatib always calls down blessings upon the Ali Muhammad, the family of Muhammad. So they're already included. So Baiqara rules like this. So here we see that despite the kind of strongly Sunni-centric, Abu Bakr-loving nature of the Naqshbandiya, that there is the inclusion of this kind of Philo-Ali dimension, uh, which uh, becomes important particularly with, with Jami's friend and relative by marriage, uh, Mullah Hussein Va'iz Kashafi, who is another of the great stars in the firmament of the Timurid Renaissance in Herat at the time, who writes the greatest of all accounts of uh, the sufferings of the Ahlul Bayt and the um, Battle of Karbala, um, Rosa al-Shuhada, the Garden of the Martyrs. Uh, this is, what's interesting about this is, first of all, the insistence of the Sunni ulama on inclusion while they're unhappy, they're unhappy about attacks on Abu Bakr. But also you see the Sunni governors of these cities really worried about sectarian dispute and trying to find a resolution so that the Sunnis and the Shia can live together in peace. This is upended, of course, with the Shi'i revolution and the attack on Sunni Islam in the, the new uh, Safavid uh, empire in Iran and parts of Central Asia. And of course, in more recent times, the sort of Wahhabi idea that the Shia are not really Muslims at all have also caused um, detonations in a number of these, these places. But you see, the traditional Sunni position is to try and bring about reconciliation. You appoint a tribunal, you try and settle the thing. Um, so he's not really very happy about Baghdad, and his poem about Baghdad is a little bit kind of denunciatory. But then he goes on his way to Medina, to Najaf, and spend some time very close to the tomb of Imam Ali. And there he deals with the ulama of all kinds, and it seems to have been a very peaceful 
beautiful time. Three weeks later, he's in Medina. Here you find his very strong prophetic devotion. He's well known as an author of Nat poetry. Um, even today in India, some of the Jami poems that the, the Persian knowing Olamat still love to celebrate in places like Hyderabad and Lucknow, they're from Mullah Jami. He does the Hajj, he comes back again via Medina, uh, and then he goes not through Iraq, back to Central Asia, but up to Damascus. In Damascus, he seems to be involved mainly in Hadith scholarship and gets an ijazah from major scholars of the city. Then another political problem comes in that Sultan Mehmed, the conqueror in Istanbul, who has this big new city and he wants to fill it with scholars, sends him, you know, sends a delegation to meet him. The delegation has, you know, a thousand gold coins and the promise of a hundred thousand if he'll only agree to change his travel plans and go and settle in Istanbul to be another jewel in the crown of the new Ottoman realm. And Jami doesn't want to do this. He likes Sultan Mehmed Fatih and they have a correspondence. Uh, and of course some Ottoman ulama are present in Central Asia, as with, with Qadi Zadeh, the astronomer, as we saw. So his policy is, he doesn't want to annoy the Sultan, but he makes sure that he accelerates his journey so that he's one step ahead of this delegation. Uh, and finally he gets over the border, he gets to Tabriz, capital of Iran, and meets uh, Sultan Uzun Hassan, who is head of the Akoyun, the white sheep Turkmen, so the main dynasty controlling Iran and making it a kind of inclusive Sunni Shi'i environment at the time. And in the year 1474, after about 18 months of travels, he's back in Herat. Of course, these are his outward movements. Uh, what we remember him for primarily is uh, the poetry, and sometime around now he's writing his Baharistan, his abode of spring, uh, which uh, seems to be dedicated to Sultan Hussein Baikara, but also has something to do with, with his son, because it's a kind of instructive work. Raudat al-Akhyar wa Tuhfat al-Abrar, it's called. And the Baharistan, which is still very popular, is uh, explicitly inspired by Sa'di's Gulistan, the, the Rose Garden, um, and is a kind of didactic poem full of stories to improve the young, divided into eight gardens, rather like the Gulistan. <coughs> Garden number one, words of the saints. Number two, wisdom of the sages. Number three, justice and government. Number four, generosity and nobility. Number five, love. Number six, jokes. Number seven, how to write good poetry, with lots of examples. Number eight, animal stories and fables. Uh, so his fame as a poet continues to accumulate. He's writing his divan, or his various divans, but um, these are expanding, and there's different recensions dedicated to different rulers, and it's only towards the end of his life that he finally tries to create a definitive version of his, his own poetic works. Uh, another interesting event with possible sectarian ramifications happens in 1480, when there is the discovery of the tomb of Imam Ali, or some relic of Imam Ali, at this town that becomes known as Mazar Sharif in Afghanistan. Uh, lots of the scholars have dreams, there are various auspicious signs to indicate that, that this is indeed present. And this becomes a flashpoint, but also because it's under the Sunni dynasty, an example of 
how the great love of the Ahlul Bayt amongst the Sunni leadership is actually tending to defuse these uh, Sunni-Shi'i tensions and show that they're real, but they're not really necessary. So he continues to write poetry, and basically we have three divans, and he gives each of them a title, and the, the first one is much longer than, than the later, later two. The first one he calls Fatihat al-Shabab, uh, the opening of youth. And the idea is that these are three divans arranged according to at which point in his life he composed them. Uh, and then the second divan is Vasitat al-Aqt, the middle of the course of life. And the third one, Khatimat al-Hayat, the ceiling or the end of life. Um, so this is divan, ghazals and so forth in that poetic form. And these again are some of the great jewels of Persian literature and full of interesting contemporary and autobiographical allusions. They're not stereotypical by any means, despite the view of some Orientalists. Uh, but more famous than this, and the great masterpiece, his great uh, gift to Islamic literature, and the melter and the delighter of so many hearts historically to this day, is his book Haft Aurang. Haft Aurang means the seven thrones because it's a huge piece of work, but it's divided into seven mathnavis. Rumi has his mathnavi, here's seven mathnavis, which are rhyming couplets. So the first half and the second half of each line will rhyme. Haft uh, Aurang, seven thrones, but it's also a name in Persian for the seven big stars of the great bear. So it's kind of a constellation. Uh, and this is a book which was so cherished and honoured that some of the most beautiful illuminated Islamic manuscripts are actually of the Haft Aurang. Some of the treasures in the British Library and the Library of Congress, this incredible jewel-like thing with illustrations and gold leaf, they're dazzling. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I was at a conference at the University of Tartu, the Gustavian University of Tartu, which is in Estonia, just a few miles from the Russian, Russian border, um, uh, but it's, it's a major university and had a significant 400-year history, largely at the hands of local Livonian German scholars, but there were Orientalists there. Uh, and because it was part of the Russian Empire, Estonia, for, for centuries, uh, <coughs> they accumulated various Oriental manuscripts, many of which were gifts from Persian ambassadors and rulers. So they take you into this library. Uh, and the city of Tartu, because it's kind of the boundary really between the Lutheran world and the Orthodox world, has been smashed and destroyed so many times. Um, the, uh, the famous battle with the Teutonic Knights, uh, which was the easternmost expansion of medieval German crusades, um, um, is very close. Peskov is really not so far away. It's very close to Russia, but it's very dramatic in its feel. <coughs> uh, and smashed, destroyed, Sovietized, Nazified, de-Judaized, bombed by the Red Army, smashed. It's kind of been through every conceivable catastrophe because it's right at the boundaries between Western Europe and the Russian thing. Um, somehow, these manuscripts survived. And they take you into the library and they open up these 
amazing boxes and of course you have to put on white gloves and it's all very strict because these are really precious things worth millions. And the jewel in their crown is this miracle book, the Haft Aurang of Mullah Jami. And each page you turn and the thing, as it were, comes to light. And you can see the incredible brilliance of the manuscript writing and the beautiful ta'liq script. And the, it's uh, one of the most beautiful books in the world. And alhamdulillah, it survived there. It was a gift from a, a Persian ruler to the court of the Tsars at Petersburg and ended up after many adventures in the university library at Tartu. So uh, this is a very special book for the Muslims, The Seven Thrones. Um, so the, each of these Masnavis is on a very different kind of subject and he worked over it and reworked it uh, many times until he produced the final version. The first is the Silsilat al-Dhahab, the golden chain, which we always mentioned in terms of the polemic in Baghdad, which seems to build on this idea that there is an Ahl al-Bayt initiation for the Naqshbandiya. But it really is a kind of psychological uh, treatment of love and types of love. Remember Chittik's view that if you look at the literature of Islam, you can see Islam is a religion of love. That's the best way of describing it. Uh, so the psychology of love, what is it to fall in love? What is the difference between profane and, 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 and holy love? What is the meaning of beauty? That's in the Silsilat al-Dhahab. The second one, also a love story, which is the Salaman and Absal. Now this was translated into English in the mid-19th century Salaman and Absal by Edward Fitzgerald, who also went on to do the translation for Omar Khayyam, that went on to become a Victorian and Edwardian literary sensation, part of this, one of these waves of love. Salaman and Absal, the origin of the story is mysterious. It's already there in Ibn Sina, but essentially it's about how one passes from a false amatory affection to a true one, uh, which means no longer loving the world, but loving the divine in the world and the source of the world and what the world indicates. Uh, and the story of Salaman and Absal basically is this prince uh, who falls in love with his beautiful nursemaid. They kind of have a relationship. But the nursemaid is suitable for our infancy, but indicates really dunya. We kind of drink from the teats of dunya and the nursemaid is kind to us and gives us all kinds of nice things and so we love dunya but actually there's a great conflagration where it turns out that Absal is just made of straw and she suddenly burns up. So this is indicative of Salaman's spiritual progress as he recognises the combustibility of the world and its passions and then he goes on to find his true beloved. Number three he calls Tuhfat al-Ahrar which, as the title indicates, the Ahrar's gifts, is dedicated to um, his friend Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar, uh, which is 20 discourses on religious topics with stories, like formal, formal uh, discussions. And this is, again, a major Naqshbandi monument. Number four, Subhatul Abrar, the prayer bead of the virtuous, which is made up of 40 iqt, like a knot, 
um, each about a particular principle of the, the Naqshbandi way. Number five, Yusuf and Zuleikha, Joseph and Zuleikha, the famous love story, which hopefully we'll have time to dip into briefly at the end of this, this talk. Number six, of course, Leila and Majnoon, one of the favourite love stories that comes into um, the waves of love that, that transform Europe and start raising it up from a kind of formalistic, uh, monastery-based, flagellant religion and turning it towards the path of love. Uh, and then finally, Khirat Iskandari, the book of wisdom of Alexander the Great, which is about Alexander on his travels and the various sages and philosophers, including Aristotle, who he meets, who uplift him with various aphorisms on his way. So, yeah, the Taft Aurang, the Seven Thrones, is one of the great, extraordinary firework displays of Persian literary capacity and also the sheer amount of wisdom which had been accumulated by the Muslims by this time, using love particularly as the master signifier that enables us, through our perception of beauty, to recognise the Creator's uh, origin and presence uh, of, of, of uh, originating and presence of the phenomena of existence. 1492, he falls seriously ill, it's very cold. Friday the 17th of Muharram, he's on his deathbed. Um, Nava'i sits beside him, they do the Naqshbandi dhikr, and he moves on to the next world. Um, his janazah, of course, everybody is there, the leading men of the state are carrying the tabot, and is buried, as we said, next to his own teacher, uh, Mullah Sa'aduddin Kashkari, radiallahu an. Other books, we don't know how many books he wrote exactly because it's complicated and some of them have different titles. Uh, he, he, we did indicate, and this is kind of important particularly for his reception in the Ottoman world, that he was concerned by the apparent tension between the way of the mind and the way of the heart the way of Avicenna and the philosophers and the Motokelimin, or logic chopping, induction, and the path of ecstasy and personal experience of the divine. And one of the books that he writes, which has been done into English actually, um, by uh, Nicholas here, is Ad-Durratul Fakhira, The Precious Pearl, which is where the philosophers and the Kalam scholars and the Sufis come together in order to discuss metaphysics. What is the nature of being? What is the nature of the perfect human being? What are the processes by which the mind can induct the nature and the, the presence of God? And this work was actually commissioned by Sultan Mehmed the Conqueror. He wrote all the way to Herat to say, Mullah Jami, we have these discussions. We have Ibn Arabi is very popular amongst the ulama, but some people think that Kalam is in tension with him. Can you sort this out? So he produces this book, The Precious Pearl, in order to get into this. And he does this also in others of his works, particularly his Lawayaha, which is a kind of, it's a Persian work in which he uh, defends the position of Ibn Arabi uh, against uh, certain Kalam perceptions. The Kalam scholar is not really against Ibn Arabi. This is classical Islamic civilization, a world of discussion and, and respect, but there are certain tensions. And he also writes a uh, commentary uh, on the Fusus al-Hikam of Ibn al-Arabi. He writes a commentary on the two great poems of uh, Ibn al-Farid, the Khamriya, 
the wine ode, and also his Ta'iyat al-Kubra, uh, which is this enormous poem about uh, metaphysics, 600 lines or something, which is the masterwork of Ibn al-Farid, the great Egyptian uh, Sufi scholar. So, yeah, you can see that he's uh, not a slacker, but I, I did want to sort of deal with some of his poetry, having dealt with his life, and despite the difficulties of translation, perhaps we can get something out of it. And the one that I'd like to look at is a neglected classic of our civilization, uh, which is his Yusuf ve Zuleikha, Joseph and Zuleikha. Zuleikha, of course, is the name which the tradition and the tafsir authors attribute to the seductress wife of Al-Aziz Potiphar in Egypt. And this is um, spun out by the tafsir authors of uh, the great story, Ahsan al-Qasas, the most beautiful tale, which is told in Surah 12 of the Qur'an, Surah Yusuf. Now, of course, because this is about love, transformation, uh, vindication, this is the kind of surah that um, the ulama and the Sufis amongst the ulama are going to be particularly interested in. The Qur'an can't simply be telling us a love story. Some of the early khawarij in Islam thought this is this is just a love story, they wanted to take it out of the Qur'an. Uh, because Khawarij literalists not, not into love. Um, but the ulama, of course, saw that this is part of the, the panoply of paths to God which the Qur'an is offering to us. Now, this story um, is indicative of the way in which modern Muslims and people at the fringes of Muslim discussions misunderstand these three waves of love by which Islam has enriched and transformed Europe, or sought to do so, do not come from some kind of mystical fringe in our civilization. But as we've seen with Timurid Hirat, the center of the civilization is these discourses. Mullah Kashafi is giving the Friday khutbas in, in Herat and he's from this Naqrbandi Sufi world. Mullah Jami is the greatest poet and the greatest Naqrbandi sage. Uh, Baiqara, uh, Khaja Ubaidullah Ahrar, Muhammad Parsa, Ali Shir Nevai, these are, these are the heart of the Muslim religious inter intelligentsia of the time, and it's all Sufism. So we read with regret uh, modern attempts to cause division. Uh, so, for instance, Elif Shafak, who's now Turkey's best known female novelist, whose perception has been kind of shattered by old Ataturkist ideas of the Sufis and the scholars and reactionary and progress and so forth. So this is what she says, oh dear. Throughout the centuries, in the eyes of the conservative-minded, Zuleikha has stood out as a despicable symbol of lust, hedonism and ultimately feminine evil. As wicked as Zuleikha might be in the eyes of the conservative Muslims, she was considered in a completely different way by the Sufis. Hmm. So she's saying that Mullah Jami is not a conservative Muslim. What's she talking about exactly? It's a kind of westernized, orientalist, 19th century perception of conservative meaning bad and meaning exoteric, and the Sufis being some kind of spirit-illumined, freewheeling, free-love type of alternative. As we've seen with the life of Mullah Jami, as you can see with Maulana and all of these other writers, it's not like that. It's never been like that. This is a piece of the typical confusion that comes from uh, the the disasters of, of the breaking of Turkey by uh, 
<coughs> by Ataturk and the internalizing of these divisive and negative stereotypes by people who really haven't studied the tradition and wouldn't be seen dead in a Ottoman in a library of Ottoman literature. So uh, let's set aside these modern divisive bifurcations and actually see for ourselves what Molna Jami, if you go into a bookshop, a good bookshop in modern Istanbul and ask for Molna Jami, they'll give you his logic work because the logic work is what Molna Jami is in the madrasa. So conservative minded, okay. But this is his Yusuf and Zuleikha. And I want to read through some of this. Um, there are some English translations, um, kind of from the Fitzgerald era. Um, there's an Alexander Rogers who in 1912 did a translation. Um, and there's also a certain Charles Horn who in 1917 published a translation. <coughs> More recently, because the Yusuf and Zuleikha story has really inspired so many in Islamic literature, from Sheikh al-Islam Kamal Pashazade to Yahya Effendi to many of the Indias, Indians. Most recent one, actually, 19, uh, 2010, is the Yusuf Zuleikha of uh, somebody called Kul Ghali, who is considered to be the founder of Tatar and Bashkir literature on the banks of the Volga, right up in Russia. Their first great literary monument, those people up in the frozen north um, Kazan uh, and Bulgar is the Yusuf and Zuleikha story. So Rafael Bukhareyev has produced this edition and very nice uh, translation. And it's a nice, nice book. It's got nice illuminations and calligraphies and it's a beautiful thing to have. That's the Yusuf and Zuleikha story. Uh, <coughs> incidentally, the story of the Prophet Yusuf was very interesting to Muslim minorities historically. Why? Because here is a prophet of God happily serving as a civil servant in unbelieving Egypt. So if you're oppressed by Ivan the Terrible or Catherine the Great or whoever, uh, you can say religiously, it's not a problem for us getting a job with these people because Yusuf could work for Fir'aun and one of his employees. And so this was a precedent. Um, useful example for Muslim minorities down the centuries. Anyway, Yusuf and Zuleikha. Now, the story is elaborated from a lot of legends and nobody in the history of Islamic poetry has claimed that this is all historically true. It's a fable that is designed to uplift you and give you hope and to illustrate the transformative sacramental power of love. So Yusuf is famously Utiya Shatr al-Husn, given half of all beauty. He's absolutely ravishing and stunning. And uh, Zuleikha, who is in the poem described as a princess of Mauritania, has a dream of Yusuf three dreams again, and she falls in love with him in her dream. So when she wakes up, she's in love. The princess is in love. and She, she knows that he's in Egypt. She longs to go to Egypt. So um, here is the kind of, it's pulling out the organ stops of the Persian language here, the, 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 the beginning. This is Horn's translation. And you have to remember that this is experienced as a kind of music, that there would be a reciter who would produce these lusciously exquisite verses for public delectation. And it's not supposed to get to the point quickly. You enjoy the beauty of the language as you go. The ravens of the night were hushed. The bird of dawn began his lay. 
the rosebud newly awakened blushed to feel the touch of springing day, and bade the roses round unveil, roused by the warbling nightingale, the jasmine stood all bathed in dew, wet with the violet's lids of blue. Soleicha, fairer than the flowers, lay tranced, for twas not sleep that stole her senses through the night's still hours, and raised new visions to her soul, the heart unfettered, free to rove, turned towards the idol of her love. So then, to fast forward in the story, she hears that she has been betrothed ah, to this great man of Egypt. Everybody says how great he is. And she thinks, this is the fulfilment of my dream. It's a true dream. So in her excitement, off she goes and she approaches Egypt and she's so delighted to see the caravan that's bringing her beloved towards her. So this is her a bit later. O joy too great, O hour too blessed, he comes. They hail him, now more near, his eager courser's feet I hear. O heart, be hushed within my breast. Burst not with rapture, can it be? The idol of my life, divine, all radiant, clothed in mystery, and loving me as I adore, as none dared ever love before, shall be, nay is, even now is mine. I will be patient, but his breath seems stealing o'er my senses. Death were better than suspense like this. One draught, though twere the last, of bliss. One glance, though in that glance I die, to prove the glorious certainty. And then, of course, the moment happens when the, the, the palanquin has the covers taken off and she sees the man she's going to marry. And it's not Yusuf, it's the Aziz, this middle-aged Egyptian bureaucrat. Not he, not he, on whom for years my soul has dwelt with sacred truth, for whom my life has passed in tears and wasted was my bloom of youth, for whom I breathed and thought and moved, my own, my worship, my beloved. I hail the night that I might gaze upon his star's unconquered blaze, the morn but rose that I might pray, hope, wish, expect from day to day. My sole existence was that thought, and I do wake to know tis naught. Vain tears, vain madness, vain endeavour, another blasts my sight forever. Have I then lingered long in pain, in sad suspense, in musings vain, to be, O crowning grief, betrayed in foreign lands, a victim made? Relentless destiny, accursed, where were all the joys thy visions nursed? Is there no drop of hope left yet? Must I all promises forget? Dash not my cup to earth, say, power benign, I may be blessed, even yet he may be mine. Why hast thou thus so cruelly robbed me of my peace? What have I done to thee to be thus treated? It is folly indeed that I seek help from thee. When souls melt, thou art called upon for aid. What is the melting of thy soul? Thus raved Zuleicha, when without arose the sudden, sudden deafening shout that hailed the close of all their toil, Lo, Memphis and the banks of Nile. And onward to the palace gate, the train poured on in sumptuous state. The glowing portals opened wide, in flowed the overwhelming tide, ushering the Aziz and his bride. A throne the Peris might have framed, the sun and moon's pale lust ashamed, and she whose radiance all effaced, Zuleicha on the throne was placed, sparkling with jewels, red with gold. Her heart shrunk, withered, crushed and cold. So then, of course, the plot thickens when Yusuf does appear, but he's a slave and is employed <coughs> by her husband in her household. 
So the famous episode of her losing control and her attempted uh, seduction of Yusuf and the sexual harassment charges brought and of course he's chucked into jail. So we have to fast forward and here we have uh, the prison scene. And here you can see that the poet Abdurrahman Jami is moving us to recognize that all of this is a symbol. So we have to think, what does this mean? Who is Zuleikha? What is this beauty that she's fallen in love with? Why is it that her hopes are dashed when she's betrothed to somebody who is not her beloved? Does this mean anything? Though in a dark and narrow cell, the fair beloved confined may dwell. No prison is that dismal place. Tis filled with dignity and grace. And the damp vaults and gloom around are joyous spring with roses crowned. Not paradise to me were fair if he were not a dweller there. Without his presence all is night. My soul awakes but in his sight. Though this frail tenement of clay may here amidst its pomp remain, my spirit wanders far away and dwells with his imprisoned pain. In solitude where being signless dwelt, and all the universe still dormant lay, concealed in selflessness one being was, exempt from I or thouness and apart, from all duality, beauty supreme, unmanifest except unto itself. By its own light, yet fraught with power to charm, the souls of all concealed in the unseen, an essence pure, unstained by aught of ill. No mirror to reflect its loveliness, nor comb to touch its locks. The morning breeze ne'er stirred its tresses. It's got its with a capital I now, of course. No calyrium lent luster to its eyes. No rosy cheeks o'ershadowed by dank curls like hyacinth. Nor peach-like down were there. No dusky mole adorned its face. No eye had yet beheld its image. To itself it sang of love in wordless measures. By itself it cast the die of love. So this is the divine, the absolute, before manifestation in the beauty of the world. But beauty cannot brook concealment, and the veil, nor patient rest unseen and unadmired, twill burst all bonds, and from its prison casement to the world reveal itself. See where the tulip grows in upland meadows, how in balmy spring it de decks itself, and how amidst its thorns the wild rose rends its garment and reveals its loveliness. Thou too, when some rare thought, or beauty's image, or deep mystery, flashes across thy soul, canst not endure to let it pass, but holst it, that perchance in speech or writing thou mayst send it forth to charm the world. Whatever beauty dwells, such is its nature, and its heritage from everlasting beauty, which emerged from realms of purity, to shine upon the worlds, and all the souls which dwell therein. One gleam, one gleam fell from it on the universe and on the angels, and this single ray dazzled the angels till their senses whirled like the revolving sky. In diverse forms, each mirror showed it forth, and everywhere its praise was chanted in new harmonies. The cherubim enraptured sought for songs of praise. The spirits who explore the depths of boundless seas, wherein the heavens swim like some small boat, cried with one mighty voice, Praise to the Lord of all the universe. No heart is that which love ne'er wounded. They who know not lovers' pangs are soulless clay. 
Turn from the world, O turn thy wandering feet, come to the world of love and find it sweet. Once to his master a disciple cried, to wisdom's pleasant path be thou my guide. And this is said to be an actual incident in the life of um, Khawaja Ubaidullah Ahrar. A murid once came to him, a young man saying, can you be my murshid please? Hast thou never loved? The master answered, learn the ways of love and then to me return. So the idea is that Khawaja Ahrar wouldn't accept the discipleship of somebody who'd never been in love. That's the idea. Drink deep of earthly love, that so thy lip may learn the wine of holier love to sip. It's very different from the usual Western Christian monastic idea that earthly love, love of the human beloved, opens and awakens something within us where we perceive uh, an aspect of the mirror that shows the divine beauty that awakens us so that we can move from this metaphorical love to the real love, ishqi haqiqi. But let not form too long thy soul in trance. Pass o'er the bridge with rapid feet advance. If thou wilt rest, thine ordered journey sped. Forbear to linger at the bridge's head. So falling in love with your girlfriend, your bride, whatever, is a useful, necessary invitation to the true love. And it contains within itself a metaphorical pointer that is real. It's not a false illusion. But it's, as he says, the, the bridge's head, it's the beginning of the journey. In this orchestra full of vain deceit, the drum of being each in turn we beat. Each morning brings new truth to light and fame, and on the world false luster from a name. If in one constant course the ages rolled, full many a secret would remain untold. If the sun's splendour never died away, ne'er would the market of the stars be gay. If in our gardens endless frost were king, no rose would blossom at the kiss of spring. And then, of course, uh, in quotes, I shall roll up the carpet of life when I see thy dear face again, and shall cease to be, for self will be lost in that rapture, and all the threads of my thought from my hand will fall. Not me wilt thou find, for this self will have fled. Thou wilt be my soul in mine own soul's stead. All thought of self will be swept from my mind, and thee, only thee, in my place shall I find. More precious than heaven, than earth more dear, myself were forgotten if thou wert near. Mine eyes have been touched by the truth's pure ray, and the dream of folly has passed away. Mine eyes thou hast opened, God bless thee for it and my heart to the soul of the soul thou hast knit. From a fond, strange love thou hast turned my feet, the Lord of all creatures to know and to meet. If I bore a tongue in each single hair, each and all should thy praise declare. By the excellent bloom of that cheek which he gave, by that beauty which makes the whole world thy slave, by the splendour that beams from that beautiful brow that bids the full moon to thy majesty bow, by the graceful gait of that cypress, by the delicate bough that is bent o'er thine eye, by that arch of the temple devoted to prayer, by each fine woven mesh of the coils of thy hair, by that charming Narcissus, that form arrayed in the sheen and glory of silk brocade, by that secret thou callest a mouth, by the hair, thou callest the waist of that body most fair, by the musky spots on thy cheeks pure rose, by the smile of thy lips when those buds unclose, etc, etc, etc. And then 
we find uh, that in her love for Yusuf and her growing recognition that Yusuf's beauty is not from Yusuf but is a sign of the transcendent, so he is shahid in the Sufi language, he is a witness to what is belong, beyond, and what is in her soul of passion is ultimately a passion for the creator, the one who has made him Siddiq. Uh, she confides in her maid saying, I'm in love with, with the slave. And so crazy is her love that she takes off her rings and her jewels and gives them to her, to her servant saying, just recite to me some beautiful poems about Yusuf and tell me how wonderful he is. And she's intoxicated by these poems. And so eventually she becomes a pauper. She gives away everything. Uh, she gives away everything to her servant just to hear more talk about Yusuf and the wonders of Yusuf. And then there comes the critical moment. The Aziz, Potiphar, has died. Uh, but there is in the house the idol. This is Egypt. Okay, there's Thoth, there's Ra, there's Amon, there's, you have to think of the Egyptian scene. And in the house there's the domestic idol, which is said to have been the basis of the, 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 the beginning of her repentance, because when she started to seduce Joseph, and this is in some of the tafsir authors, she takes a cloth and throws it over the idol, so the idol won't see what she's doing. But the idol, of course, in Jami's view, is a symbol uh, of the, the, the self, the lower self. So he, she then says, we're, I guess, nearly there now, O thou who hast broken mine honour's urn, thou stone of offence wheresoever I turn, I should smite, for thy falsehood has ruined my rest, with the stone thou art made of, the heart in my breast. The way of misfortune too surely I trod, when I bowed before thee and made thee my God. When I looked up to thee with wet eyes in my woe, I renounced all the bliss which both worlds can bestow. From thy stony dominion my soul will I flee, and thus shatter the gem of thy power and thee with a hard flint stone like the friend as she spoke. In a thousand pieces the image she broke. Riven and shattered the idol fell, and with her from that moment shall all be well. She made her ablution, made penitent sighs. With the blood of her heart and the tears of her eyes, she bent down her head to the dust with a moan. She made supplication to God's pure throne. And then you have her long prayer to God, because she's now seen beyond the snares of the world and her prosperity, she's given it away because of her love and she's broken, and her, she's broken the idol. Uh, and now she speaks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we don't have time for reading all of this. Um, and she is still thinking about Yusuf. So the point of this is that she's not renouncing her love but she's now seeing what it means. She's still in love with him, but she's now old. That's the tragedy. She's grown old in this. Now restore the lost blessing for which I pray. May I feel heart free from the brand of its woes and cull from the garden of Yusuf a rose. Where is thy youth and thy beauty and pride? Gone since I parted from thee, she replied. Where is the light of thine eye, said he, drowned in blood tears for the loss of thee? Why is that cypress tree bowed and bent? That's her stature, her, her um, figure. By absence from thee and thy long, my long lament. 
Where is thy pearl and thy silver and gold and the diadem bright on thy head of old? She who spoke of my loved one, she answered, shed in the praise of thy beauty, rare pearls on my head. In return for those jewels, a recompense meet. I scattered my jewels and gold at her feet. A crown of pure gold on her forehead I set, and the dust that she trod was my coronet. The stream of my treasure of gold ran dry. My heart is love's storehouse, and I am I. And then, having explained how she's lost all of her dunya, and she's broken the idol of her former attachments, and she's still absolutely transformed by this love for Sayyidina Yusuf, alayhi salam, and her need for him, then a miracle happens. The beauty returned, which was ruined and dead, and her cheek gained the splendour which long had fled. Again shone the waters which sad years had dried, and the rosebud of youth bloomed again in its pride. The musk was restored and the camphor withdrawn, and the black night followed the grey of the dawn. The cypress rose stately and tall as of old, the pure silver was free from all wrinkle and fold. From each musky tress fled the traces of white, to the black narcissus came beauty and light. The one sole wish of my heart, she replied, is still to be near thee, to sit by thy side, to have thee by day in my happy sight, and to lay my cheek on thy foot at night, to lie in the shade of the cypress and sip the sugar that lies on thy ruby lip, to my wounded heart this soft balm to lay, for naught beyond this can I wish or pray. The streams of thy love will new life bestow on the dry, dusty field where its sweet waters flow. Thus spoke the angel, to thee, O king, from the Lord Almighty a message I bring. Mine eyes have seen her in humble mood. I hear, heard her prayer when to thee she sued. At the sight of her labours, her prayers and sighs, the waves of the sea of my pity arise. Her soul from the sword of despair I free, and here from my throne I betroth her to thee. So we get a happy ending. <coughs> But he's not telling the story just for our amusement or entertainment, but it's about the journey of the soul. It's about the need to divest ourselves of the love of everything that is other than the divine beauty, the absolute. (coughs) And also a sign of hope in that the dream which in her youth she had seen, the youthful aspiration, the spiritual awakening, the need for beauty and for the absolute (coughs) and for union, actually comes true in the end. So the message is, don't despair, despite the fact that she was married to her beloved's master, despite the fact that the beloved was sent to jail, despite the fact that she was old and grey, Allah and his power can bring people to the end (coughs) of their spiritual quest. So uh, it's also important to reflect that whatever Shafak might claim, our tradition Uh, values woman as a symbol of spiritual transformation. Majnun and Layla is about Majnun's transformation. This is the story of Zuleikha's transformation. And also the absolute valoration valoration of love, which of course in Ibn Arabi's system in particular is characteristic of Islam, which is why the Holy Prophet said that women have been made beloved to me. So unlike some traditions where they're seen as the devil's snares, here you find them as uh, not just uh, the recipients of divine beauty, uh, but also the seekers of divine beauty. So in this story, she's given agency despite her helplessness. 
and she was finally vindicated. So there's much more we could say about the, the Joseph and Zuleikha story, but we've come to the end of our time, I think, and alhamdulillah, if that's just uh, a tasty drop from the sweet sea of Imam Jami's ocean that is still so appreciated in places like Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Bukhara, where people still speak Farsi and love Mullah Jami, many traditional places in India. An older generation of the Darul Alums used to love this tradition before this current preoccupation with the fatwa and hadith monopolization of Muslim learning um, uh, appeared in recent years. Yeah, the Khatam al-Shu'ara, the seal of the poets, and impossible to imagine anybody bettering this accomplishment. And despite the, the beauty and the urbanity and the sophistication and all of the literary conceits and tropes and images, and uh, we find nonetheless that it is all about God and that he is sugaring the pill of the difficult path of spiritual transformation with these beautiful stories in order to make people, in his case mostly from the elite, think seriously about what beauty is, what we find in beauty, how to move from metaphorical beauty to the contemplation of the true beauty of the divine Jamal. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala show his mercy to Imam Mullah Abdurrahman Jami and bring him light in his grave and inshallah benefit us from this extraordinary paradigm of leadership and inshallah in the current eclipse of Muslim greatness to bring a new dawn inshallah and to raise up once again people who shine with deen and culture and civilization uh, and to add more jewels to the diadem of the crown of our civilization inshallah thank you for your patience taqabbalallahu minni wa minkum assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh cambridge muslim college training the next generation of muslim thinkers